Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Okay, well, I guess welcome back to Micromobility, and we have uh, Horace and I, and for the well, second time, I guess, isn't it, uh, in the same room. <laughs> How are you doing, doing today, Horace? Very well, and actually, I think it's the first, second time we met, but it's the first time we we're actually recording in the same room, right? No, no, we did it with uh, Riley. Oh, we did it with Riley, yes, yes, that's right, that's right. Yeah. That yeah. was right, that was in San Francisco. Now we are in Christchurch, New Zealand. Yes. The uh, old stomping grounds of Oliver, or maybe not, but <laughs> certainly much nearer to them. Uh, so for those of us who, like me, have never been to New Zealand before, uh, Christchurch is uh, on a so-called South Island, and it's the largest in, uh, on the South Island. Yeah, it's the largest city down here. And yeah. it's um, second or third largest in all of New Zealand behind um, Auckland, which is the biggest city, yep. and uh, Wellington, which is the capital city. Yep. Both of those are in the North Island. And I flew into Auckland, then very briefly, just completely immediately transitioned to Wellington, where I spent two days. And we... Um, Minister of Transport, the New Zealand Transport Agency, the Ministry yes. of Transport, the Wellington City Council. Horace, we put Horace on quite the tour. Yeah, it was. A, it <laughs> Rolled was him a, out. It was a, a lot of meetings in a short time. We went through and saw um, folks from from government, um, policy, um, the the uh, council, the city council, yeah. um, the um, Ministry of Transport. Um, staff or individuals also the transit authority right yeah yeah absolutely so i mean i think the 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 part of uh well the purpose of this episode and i should also say as well why are you down in new zealand you're here for the uh t-tech the itsnz t-tech conference where you'll be that's right so that's that's tomorrow uh we're recording on a on a sunday right now but it was um i flew in a few days early to do the tour of wellington but in christchurch there's the conference uh T-Tech, you said? It's, yeah. it's It's called, and it's a... Um, so, well, tell us about T-Tech, then, maybe what I should, what should I know about it? I yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, so, it's a conference about the future of transport in New Zealand. Um, it's run by ITSNZ, which is the... Uh, it's, it's sort of the, one of the, the kind of a conglomerate of a large... A lot of the large transport consultancies in New Zealand. Um, but Horace will be talking about micromobility and why in New Zealand we should be really like very actively advocating for micromobility. And I think he's found a pretty receptive audience, don't you well, think? Well, so far. And But here's the thing. So I want to lay the foundation for folks outside. And Christchurch, again, going back to topography and geography and geology, Christchurch has been... Um, the victim of a of a large earthquake in 2011. And when I came here, I wasn't very well aware of it. I wasn't at all aware of it. But um, when 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 I got into my hotel, I looked out the window, and it was just like it looked like there was vacant lots all around this hotel. And I thought, <laughs> what, what's wrong with this hotel? It's in the middle of nowhere. 
Uh, it turns out it is actually in the middle of the smack dab in the middle of the city, but the, the uh, thousands of buildings in the city have been demolished. And so the, what we have is essentially this, like half the city's missing. And and as a result, what this has to do with micromobility is as a result, the city got a kind of a, a chance to re redesign itself. Mm. Uh, not 100%, but a lot of the... Uh, infrastructure of the city obviously not just buildings got damaged but the entire the roads and the and the you know the, the infrastructure itself was damaged and so they had the chance to rebuild and as a result it's very nicely laid out it's a first of all it's a grid city but this the the new streets are laid out with a lot of uh, protected bike lanes mm. and so oliver and i took a ride yesterday from the city to the shore uh, the city is not quite on the, the water's edge, but it is sort of driving or riding distance away. And, uh, and we rented a couple of e-bikes. Actually, yep. we did a couple of uh, scooter rides as well, but mostly the, the e-bike was for the long distance. In fact, very consistent with what you might think about in terms of um, the addressable market of, of, of small transport. Um, we can get around the city very comfortably on 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 scooters mm. within the downtown area. But if you wanted to reach the shore, you would take a bike, and the distance is about eight ten kilometers. Yeah, um, and a leisurely uh, hours ride away. Yeah, mm. uh, obviously we went we went on on pedelecs or or e bikes, but they were they were uh, limited to about twenty five kilometers an hour. Yeah, um, and at twenty five. Uh, there's you don't even break a sweat it's not hard to ride uh and uh obviously if we if we had s pedal x we could go 45 and it would have been a bit more uh, strenuous but it would have also gotten us there in probably uh half an hour and and it's 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 a very nice little story of how uh you in a in, in a city like this you don't really need uh you don't need a car mm. and which is such a different story because Christchurch has traditionally been out of all of the cities in New Zealand, the most auto dependent. Like it was, you know, it was originally built. I mean, it's flat topography. It's very, I mean, it's on the edge. It's got, it sits in a very large area of plains. So there's no, um, there's no hills. And, and when it was built, it ended up being predominantly car based. They ended up having, I think there's like one commuter rail in the whole city, but other than that, everybody, you know, the, like the car dependency mode share is incredibly high. So it was very interesting when they decided to do the rebuild that they actively promoted um, more bike share or more bikes. More, and, certainly more. Yeah, there's a And lot it was like a big political fight when that happened because there were a lot of people. I mean, it's actually fascinating, I think, in some ways because it informs the way, like, you can see how different. Um, cultures like uh, were fighting over over what the city got to look like as it got rebuilt mm -hmm. because one of the first um, things that happened was there was a lot of people saying um, we need to the first thing we need to do is build a lot more car parks in the downtown right. as so, that's the first thing we should be building when we do our car you know when we start rebuilding the city um, which which happened and we do have a number of really big car parks but they then were able to allocate more road space to uh, these bike lanes and actually when you look at um, which cities around the world are doing the best in terms of scooter adoption or Lime you know Lime's here and they have just expanded their cap actually Christchurch City Council is like one of the most progressive and adopting mm -hmm. um, 
I was talking to, to Michael Nucker, um, Bride Report issued a sort of statement on, on Christchurch City and I'm like, look, Christchurch City is probably the most progressive um, city regulator that we're dealing with globally, or one of um, the most progressive in terms of they're looking at doing dynamic caps. They're really interested in how do you, you know, really absorb micromobility into a new city. And they're doing that because they're coming from a place of everything's in flux, right? And so the question that I have for you is like, how does micromobility, if I think, because I, th- I look forward and I'm like, Christchurch is in some ways like a microcosm of what the world's going to look like when we have climate change. <laughs> well, like what happens when all of a sudden, like what we've traditionally relied on as the environment starts to change? Well, let me put it a different way. I think that things are difficult to change when you have a notion in the, in, 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 in the brain called sunk costs. Yes. Now, a lot of cities today will not change because they say, well, the, the city is the way it is. We don't want to mess it up. We don't want to redesign. It's going to cost a lot of money. We have to tear things down and people will complain. Mm. So we don't want to give up even a single parking spot because whoever is in that neighborhood relies on that spot. So everybody's fighting tooth and nail for completely not changing anything. And that is a that is a facet of what's called sunk cost. So sunk cost means... Um, let me give you the best little um, description of, of sunk cost as a cartoon, as a, as a vignette. And it is uh, two men are, have, a, have a, a map looking for treasure, a mm. treasure map. And, you know, X marks the spot. They, they find where the X is on, their, on the ground and they begin digging. And, you know, they're in about a meter depth. And one of them realizes that the map is upside down. Mm. So he turns it upside down and says, we should be digging uh, 10 meters in the, in the, uh, away. Uh, and the other one points out, to see, do, you see, do you realize we've already dug one meter? <laughs> yeah. So the other one shrugs and says, yes, you're right. Let's keep digging. Yes. It's exactly this. Yeah. The, the, the notion behind sunk costs is that we've gone this far. Might as, might as well keep going. Yeah. So if a city is, is done wrong and, and it's incompatible with the future, it's incompatible with, uh, with, with even a, a, an efficient version of the present, mm. then people say, let's not do the efficient, better thing because we've done so much already. Yes. We've got these parking spots. We've got these uh, parking garages. We've got these... The streets designed this way. We've got all these people who own cars and they're culturally ingrained. That's how you get around and they've and, got and so money invested only, in those you, things. You, 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 you know, the gold is elsewhere mm. and you may point out to them that there's gold there. It's not even like a better environment. It's just literally more money. There's more money mm. if you did the right thing. If you, if you, and, and the, 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 the way city planning uh, or or city politics often is 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 nimby there's not in my backyard mm. i don't want to have anything uh different or or potentially uh worse mm-hmm. potentially is a key word here mm. um and so people refuse to have you know in the u.s it's like they would refuse to have transit no buses please yes. no trains please no uh, obviously, no industry, no manufacturing, no nothing, and I want, I want somehow my 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 environment to be 
sterile or identical to the way it is or mm. it's striking to me that that's the mentality of uh, in the instinct of 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 right you know of, of thoughtful people mm. so it, what you so in order to invert this okay the really the remedy and we're seeing here in, Char- in Christchurch is an opportunity which actually was brought about by disaster yes when a disaster occurs you suddenly have no the the sunk cost is 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 um, is wiped out mm. and, and to go back to our analogy of the men digging imagine if there's a there's a there's a little bit of a um, um, you know earthquake mm. and then uh, you know a bunch of dirt comes down the mountain fills their hole mm. now the, you know now they look at the map and say well you know let's not continue digging or redigging the hole we already had mm. because we know already the gold isn't there. We should now that we have a, a, a filled in hole, let's, let's go and dig in the right place. Mm. So in, it's in many ways when, when, um, the, 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 when a disaster occurs, um, it, it forces this, this reevaluation of, uh, of what is the right thing to do. And sure. And that that sunk cost is no longer an excuse. And well, so, but sunk cost itself is like this concept of well, we've got an investment, we want to get our return on our investment over a long period of time. I mean, infrastructure investment timeframes are like fifty years, right? But that's the thing; it's it is an investment, but the alternative is even better. So you might get a you know a tiny a bit of of return. Mm. Or you may have expected a certain return, but the whole point is that there's a there's a map out there that shows you the where where the gold is actually the much more more values is available. And so the the I see this kind of as a as a reflection of human nature because another aspect of human perception of value is that the downside is valued much more than the upside. So we this is the risk aversion is about saying, you know, uh, if if I gave you two dollars today, and you don't have the option to get ten dollars tomorrow, mm-hmm. most people take the two dollars today, or or you know, there's been all kinds of thought experiments sure. or all, all kinds of psychological experiments trying to demonstrate how how we are, um, m- m- you know, a, ba- a bird in a hand, two in the bush, that sort of thinking and. And uh, it's clearly counter-economic thinking. It's counter. It's suboptimal thinking, and and that's why on the grand scale is what cities are, is where where citizens are are reluctant to part with the familiar in exchange for the better. Mm-hmm. And 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 so it it seems like you're beating but, your but head. But there's a risk, right? I mean, this is the thing. There's always perceived risk. There's an option. Um, there's a risk to the like, future. Oh, yes. Well, it may not work out. We may, you know, we may end up, and there's a reason for that, which is oftentimes, and I mean, we're experiencing this in New Zealand at the moment with Wellington, which is we departed from a well, which from a very well running uh, public transit system in Wellington. Uh, they mentioned this to you in the council meeting. I don't know if you got it, but I'm not sure I did. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so they had a train. They had a they had a bus network that had sort of you know they decided to kind of rejig a lot of the networks and the schedules and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it ended up and this is like a disaster. Like the half the times the bus doesn't turn up, uh-huh. and so what this means is actually like, there's a heap more congestion because a lot of people are just like, well, I can never 
rely on the bus to turn up necessarily when it said it's going to turn up so i'm going to take my car so you end up with all these really uh really negative yeah other effects that come on afterwards and 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 i guess the point that i look at right it's like yeah there's a there's reason like if you look back historically there's reason that people would look at that and say there is a risk that's incurred anytime you make a change so how do you balance those two things i mean this is the thing that i think you know obviously coming along with data saying look guys look 40% 40% of um, when you put down a bike lane, you actually end up with 40% more uh, people stopping on those roads because they want to stop because they've, you know, literally what we had yesterday, we were scootering around Christchurch. And <laughs> Data doesn't uh, influence a lot of decisions for people. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, we are not really all that rational and all that uh, uh, analytical in our thinking. Mm. Um, and, and so... People are more persuaded when they see things, mm-hmm. um, when they hear from someone else. That turns out to be, as a social, uh, as a social animal, you, the, the vouching for something by someone you trust is is worth all the analytical data in the mm-hmm. world. Uh, and so, um, th- th- this is this is uh, you know the, the question of what is truth and what is believable. It mm-hmm. all comes down to uh, whether other people believe it too and so we're an imitative species and and that's why also that's why s-curves exist because if a good idea exists you ought to see it go from zero to 100 percent instantly but we we don't accept good ideas Mm. uh instantly we accept them only after someone has demonstrated that they are good and it's it's not our own judgment of whether they are good. It's someone else's judgment, and ninety five percent of it is again is is from someone else. As as so that's what leadership is all about: is stepping up and saying, "I believe," without someone telling me to mm. believe it. And 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 so, unfortunately, there's a, there is that limitation when you want to make change happen that you have to persuade and you have to wait for people to change their minds. So. Well, I think what, what the what the case study with Christchurch is that, and by the way, the other example I wanted to give before disaster intervenes and allows a better world, is the is often uh, when we had in the 20th century that we had many many wars, and uh, when those destroyed cities cities were redesigned. Now sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse, mm-hmm. but it was much easier to get through uh, you know a, a new city planning. Uh, when when there was a rubble mm. uh, to replace um, the the um, Tokyo looks the way it does because it was built after the war and mm. it was uh, the, the, so much of it of the old city was was burned actually because it was wooden houses and one would would uh, you know you could look at cities in in Japan that didn't get uh, destroyed and, and see how they, you know, how they evolved differently. And, and so, um, when you, you start by saying, you know, what the world would look like post-climate, mm. um, and <laughs> well, not so much post-climate, but during, I mean, the, the thing is, right, is if we're starting to see these, and I don't, I, I'm not like an, a nihilist about the whole thing. I'm just like aware that we are in a claim, changing climate at the moment. And there are going to be areas that are going to be deeply affected. Through, you see it in Australia now. You've got like large areas of drought. You've got other areas that get excessive amounts of flooding. They're like the volatility of weather all of a sudden starts to change, and it makes areas that traditionally would have been inhabited 
uninhabitable. And there's a sort of like, well, we're all socially, we don't have, I, I think Christchurch in many ways, like, the reason I find it so interesting was it was like almost like a, a canary in the coal mine of how do, how do we as a civilization deal with something when like the thing that we thought was stable that was underneath us all of a sudden gets shaken. And in Christchurch, it literally got shaken. And all of a sudden you start going like, as a, the traditional mechanisms that we have for planning, the traditional mechanisms that we have for return on investment, et cetera, all kind of got thrown out the window. And you, and you have to kind of start again a little bit. Obviously, you're adapting from what has come before, but climate change is in the same way, I think. We have assumed in our mind a lot of things around how nature is relatively stable. It's going to happen in a lot of cities around the world where you're going to have climate change make these things habitable or uninhabitable, more habitable, less habitable, whatever, but outside of the bounds that we've traditionally expected. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just don't know what that has how that impacts the um, decisions on, on infrastructure. Uh, well, it, it impacts in the decisions on infrastructure because if all of a sudden things start changing a lot faster than we've traditionally seen them to change, then we're going to be looking for lower cost, more adaptable mechanisms that allow us to have, quote unquote, the same level of standard of living that we might have had before or... Um, you know, things that we, we might have to abandon. There's, whole, there's a whole discussion in the sort of climate change realm around uh, like stranded assets. Mm -hmm. Things that we thought we'd, we'd invested in them, they thought they were going to be 50-year assets and they're not. And yeah, so, no, that I see, I see. So stranded assets is like in some ways uh, infrastructure is that uh, very, very thing. And, and it's, it's going to be offering us a, a chance to, to, to rethink and redesign based on, on that. Um, so, so yeah, I think we're speaking the same thoughts here. I, I, I so for me, it's been, uh, it's been a uh, very rapid introduction to, to New Zealand here, and a couple of other things that are, are struck me. One is that uh, it, it's fairly small population-wise; it's mm -hmm. four point seven million people. Um, it's highly urbanized, however, so most people do live in cities. And so the, the, the degree of uh, to, to control, when you have, or urbanization, by the way, has one of, the, one of the aspects is that the living environment can be dramatically changed quickly because you have a more centralized control, roughly, mm -hmm. you know, when you have higher densities, you have more, more ability to affect change quickly because you have... Uh, you, 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 you know, you're not distributing it over 2,000 councils. You're yes. dri distributing the decision over one council. Although yes. that may be highly politicized, it's still fairly much more concentrated. Uh, and so, so what what the potential for New Zealand is to to um, to be a, a, an experimental uh, country. In a mm -hmm. way. I think this is one of the advantages that Nordics have had as well. I mean, the Nordics are between five and eight million people, and that's Finland, Norway, uh, Sweden, Denmark. And things are more dynamic there because they're smaller populations. They're very urban and fairly wealthy. And so you, 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 you get also a lot of progressive thinking in, 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 in charge. Mm -hmm. um, and so... So the dynamism there is—it's interesting to see that here. Also, you can contrast the uh, New Zealand with Australia, with, which is 
culturally similar, but well, careful, Horace. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm getting in trouble here, but <laughs> no, no. But it is, you know, I was trying to explain to people that that most of the world thinks that Australians are pretty laid back, uh, but uh, but New Zealanders think they're all very different than that. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, so, it's it's, um, it's like quibbling over. It's quibbling over its very, very minor details, but you know, it's familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so there's there's the but but there is this thing about Australia where um, that too is considered a small country by most global yes. standards. It's yep. what, 30, 20, 30 million. Twenty, so, twenty million. Twenty million. Mm. It's it's or roughly Canada sized, you know, yep. and, and in terms of population and um, and and so. To see things, you know, you could do a, a compare the two, these two neighbors and ask, uh, what what are they doing to make you know progress in transportation? So you know, how's how's and what strikes you? I think this is kind of the show is shaping up into kind of a, a classification of geopolitical uh, geopolitical decision making and uh, and how. Cities and governments are going to accept or or not mm-hmm. uh, transportation change, and you, you can't. You know, over the years, I've been listening to this uh, or advocating this 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 uh, micro mobility. It's always the first question: is what a city is going to do? And, yes. And, and my answer is, I don't know. It depends a lot on the cities. Yes. And it also, it, it, and the way I said to think about it is that because of tens of thousands of communities. Which we might call cities, towns, and so on. Sure. Who will have to decide? Uh, there's, there's about twenty thousand in the U.S., roughly speaking, twenty thousand in Europe, and then I don't know the rest of the world. Probably a lot more. Mm. Uh, and and that's a large population, and you can segment that population. You can find early and late, and you can find middle, and you can find um, laggards. Mm. And and so the, the, when you do that, you'll realize also that they learn from each other. So, so Australia and New Zealand might compare notes, um, and then you know maybe it's less likely you'll compare yourselves to Europe, or or maybe maybe Europe more than U.S. But it'll, there'll be this kind of dialogue that goes on, and 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 you know it's a global world, so it's it's what I expect is that we'll see early, and we'll see middle, and we'll see late, mm-hmm. and so the early. Uh, are likely to be small. Mm-hmm. And now this is the nature of also of human adoption, right? If if you think about how individuals become leaders, that the, the the innovators, the early adopters, are usually um, more independent-minded. They're probably also a little bit wealthier. They're they're also because they have the ability to to try things. Yep. Well, well, their risk tolerance is a lot higher, right, typically? Yes, and so mm-hmm. one way to think about it is that they're more tolerant of making a mistake. Yeah. And if you're not, if you don't have the means, you can't afford to choose the wrong toothpaste because you're not, you can't just throw it away and you can pick another toothpaste. Yes. So it, it's it's this willing, the, 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 the economic aspect of early adoption is that you are willing to take more risk. And so this is a place to countries and cities. So mm. which cities, when you segment cities, and you're assuming that there's 50,000 in your list, where do you go first? Where do you go second? Is you would go to these these cities, not not uh, is a case of pointed with micro mobility. You don't go to the first city because let's say Amsterdam because it's got more bikes than anybody else. So they're obviously going to do my, more micro mobility. But because they have all these bikes, they're actually maybe not interested in 
replacing bikes or, mm. or, or walking. They're not interested in, in your idea around uh, motorized vehicles. Uh, so instead, you have you, you, so this is the magic, and I, that's why I'm saying I don't know. We have, but I do know that you should segment first mm. of all, and you should be your objective as a segmentation is to essentially with segmentation you're describing the causality of the decision. You're saying by saying who's early and who's late, you're saying because early, you know adoption means you know, defining value a certain way. Mm. And therefore, these are the people who care about that first. So the the, the causal statement of micromobility almost has to include what the sequencing of the customers might be. Mm. So the, um, the so if you make a proposition, as you said, Christchurch, first of all, is, could be an early adopter, but it had an exception because it had no sunk costs related yes. to... Uh, to invested interest, not wanting to, not wanting to um, lose what they had. Yep. The the um, then you start to ask, okay, well that means that that's a that's a data point of one. So you're going to say, okay, well that means can we find cities where the vested interests yep. are are who, who else has had large disasters? It's like you know. It is. You go around the world and just go go try and drop uh, new micromobility into cities that are re- recovering from earthquakes. It's a great or, strategy. Or yeah. have, have suddenly come into, uh, they could have come into a lot of money, but there might have been, you know, uh, a, a greenfield site is another one. Mm-hmm. Gated communities are interesting. Yeah. So, for example, uh, there are cities being built with greenfield type of development. So those are actually more interesting than an, than a, an, an old city where, where there are a lot of interests. The other, you know, and then you get into the question of, well, a lot of people say, well, I'm looking for a progressive administration. Mm. Yes, but the problem with that, with that may change very quickly. You yeah. know, the political winds blow in various directions. So you, you might say it's not just that, that, that administration. I want to look for a progressive population. Mm-hmm. So they're more likely to consistently vote into that, in that direction. Mm. So you would go to cities. Now, the, the paradoxes are you might get a very progressive, supposedly, like at San Francisco would have. <laughs> yeah. In practice, though, they're very regressive. So, yes. so you have resistance to change, even though supposedly you have a more a more uh, ideological uh, uh, um, population. Uh, so it, it all depends, and this is what the hard part is. The hard part is to uh, get that insight uh, and, and also not be so committed. I also don't think you need to go to a big place versus a small place. That's an yep. easy category. Well, big is in some ways harder because you have... Well, it's, it's interesting. I think about like micromobility adoption in... London, Paris is kind of the the exception to the rule here, but like London, New York, Chicago, even San Francisco, the way they've rolled out micromobility in the yeah, sense I mean, of these are the Western like all big of these, cities, yeah. but they're, they're gigantic cities elsewhere. Mexico mm. City, 30 plus million, mm. uh, uh, Tokyo, Yokohama, yeah. Shanghai, uh, Beijing, uh, Lagos, Nigeria. I mm. mean, these are enormous mega mega cities, mm. and and then and, and and why not think of them? Mm. I, I mean, it, it's like this is the problem: is the dimensions available for you to study mm. population, topography, demographics, economics, political uh, will, history. On and on it goes, and you can choose any one of these. They're mm. all proxies for whether mm. 
that indicates whether people would like to or, or cities would accept or not this, this modal change. And, and so I, I think these are all uh, many, these are many kind of, uh, what's the word, uh, not illusions, but they're like, they're, they're siren song of data. They're, mm. they're, they're teasing and, and, and they're, they're trying to lure you into a sense of knowledge, mm. but you don't have it. What you have is, is data, not knowledge. You have data, not insight. And, and we all think that we're smart because we have data or that we, we're smart because we're making a correlation with data, but it's not enough. Mm. I caution that. And I've, I've, you know, my travels, you know, I, uh, Asia, Europe, and it, they're all different. They're super, super, very, very, you know, uh, speaking of Australia versus New Zealand, as mm. a local, you, you would probably see a huge difference between them. But um, Korea, Japan, for mm. example, neighbors, many cultural similarities, but there's also huge differences mm. at the ground level. And even within these countries, you're going to have differences between one city and another. That, that leads me to, you, you know how we've talked in the past about how there's like big vehicles and they become, and they're less conformable, they're like their ability to conform. You think about a ship, it's like, it really can only exist in ports. It's, it, it, it kind of needs a very dedicated infrastructure. Large planes need large infrastructure. And then you kind of move smaller, smaller, smaller cars. You can put trucks on, on roads and those are relatively... In adaptable. fact, cars were so much more conformable than trains. Yes. So let's not forget because the train needed its iron road it's it the, you know the it needed to to have a type of infrastructure that you couldn't walk on or you can cycle on you can mm -hmm. take a horse on yes so so the, so when the, when the iron horse came as it was called the train was remarkable is that it was a very very difficult thing to 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 deploy mm. it needed it, it not only a right of way which which so so compared to cars by the way cars did kind of piggyback where a horse-drawn wagon would have gone. Yes, and that itself would have piggybacked where people would have walked. Yes, and and so or animals would have walked. And so you know, centuries-old uh, uh, pathways were were eventually paved, which became the car infrastructure. And even mm -hmm. what was not organically um, evolved were the superhighways, which mm -hmm. required far more infrastructure than, let's say, an ancient roadway. What I'm saying, though, is that the 19th century, with with the, the train network, the 19th century forced everyone to, uh, and, and that's why the rail was such a disruption. Rail required uh, people to give land to it mm. and didn't exist. And the laws had to be passed to force farmers to sell land to railroad right. operators. Yeah. Um, by the way, ships are another one because a ship didn't require it. It needs a natural harbor. It's yes. very hard to manufacture a harbor, and it needs a, a very deep uh, place to park, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the thing about harbors. First, they're sheltered, and secondly, uh, a ship needs to come right up to the, the to the coast, and either you build a pier to reach out to the ship, or the yes. ship is able to dock right next to the land. And, and the, all of these things were where over centuries, you know, developed in the cities built around this infrastructure as of transport. So, so it, it, what, when you, you were saying about conformability. Well, the reason I was saying it is that just this idea that like, as you get further and further and further down and you go oh, into these small towns or something and 
you know, in, in, in Asia or you're in a large city in Europe or whatever. It's like all of these are so varied. And at the moment we've kind of, you talk about the sort of the, the hegemony of the car or the, you know, the hegemony of automobility and the fact that like cities have had to adapt themselves around it. But then the reason that I, I think, and as I'm conceptually understanding it as well as we kind of go on, micromobility becomes more conformable and it, beca- it, it is sort of like it's able to permeate down into those smaller things and find a niche and adapt as an yeah. organism, right, into this habitat. Of- By the way, I need to also s- point out that, that micro is, is, is dependent on automotive infrastructures. I, the beauty of, of it actually is that it piggybacks right on top of the built infrastructure. So it needs paved roads. It, yes. it, it, you could ride a, a, but you'd have to ride a mountain bike over dirt mm-hmm. roads and, um, and, and, or, or, or boulders or whatnot. It's, it's we're, we are very, very grateful to have all this paved infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And it's designed for transporting uh, co- trucks, not just cars. And mm-hmm. these are extremely, high pressure uh, per square uh, meter type of, or, you know, uh, the, the, a road overserves, mm-hmm. hugely overserves uh, micro. And the, the um, but, you know, the car piggybacked itself mm-hmm. onto uh, either horse infrastructure, but also cycling, because cycling were the first uh, modes to require smooth roads. Yes. You see, the, the smoothness uh, due to the, the rolling of a, um, uh, you know, uh, a, a very thin tire. Yeah. And, and so, you know, cobblestones were replaced with tarmac, which was a smoother surface on, on demand from, from early cycling, mm-hmm. uh, which was an urban, urban demand. Uh, whereas country roads were still mostly unpaved for 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 many many uh, decades thereafter, and there are still vast tracts of unpaved roads in the <coughs> world. Um, and and so anyway, my 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 point is though that with 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 uh, by, with the infrastructure we have for cars, we actually are granted or gifted a a huge huge bonus whenever we move to micro. Mm. The, the 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 width of these streets can absorb hundredfold increase in traffic if you move to micro. Yes. Uh, the infrastructure for parking could absorb tenfold increase in 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 storage of of micro vehicles, mm. and and so it it would be it, you know uh, it's it's interesting how how the world would look like if. If overnight, and speaking of you know the Christchurch model, it's like overnight the city would say, "Hey, all those, all these roads and parking and everything else, we're going to allocate 100% to to micro." Um, it would reshape the city dramatically because mm-hmm. it would invite people who were in the suburbs. Assuming let's assume that it wasn't downtown that was that was damaged by the suburbs. Think about that. You know, you wouldn't have. You would say, "Let's build." tall buildings with apartments and then have those people move closer to the city center. But as a trade-off, we're going to actually take cars out of the city center. Yes. And so people will be able to go to work with micromobility and, 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 and do so much more efficiently and quickly. And then, but you also have to push the car out. Mm. Now, that would be a fantastic experiment. Like a, instead of sprawl, you would have a reconcentration of, of population, a, a sort of an urban migration happen. And what would it look like? How mm. would you end up with as a city? 
So it's fascinating to think about. Um, the tendency again the 20th century was the car allowed things to spread out mm -hmm. but as we and you also mentioned the sort of the, the the climate action and change maybe one of the consequences will be people saying well if we go to micro we also have to be closer mm -hmm. and let's let's think about once again moving back into cities and living more like we did before the car mm. um, and and uh, I re I'm reminded of a funny conversation I had because in the 90s, I lived in New York. I lived in New York between 91 and 93, approximately, mm -hmm. before going to business school back in Boston, which mm -hmm. was 94 to 96. And I lived there um, in Manhattan and Brooklyn. I, I lived in, in uh, uh, I remember it was 25th and Lex was Manhattan and, and for about three months there and I, I moved to Brooklyn and I actually walked to work mm. you know, I, I would walk or, or uh, take the train and I remember meeting people in Upper West Side and, and uh, the, the, the that is a more more residential area of New York and yet still very much a building and not houses and not you know this, this, these are apartments so I met one guy who you know who uh, was working I was working at the same place and, and he had a family he was he was middle-aged and he had a family and um, and I and I said well, well why didn't you move out you know mm. once you got kids because you know everybody would want to presumably that was the mentality in the 20th centuries that you'd move you, out to Connecticut be, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. If, if you were young and you you were single you yep. might you might live in the city it's a thriving kind of social scene but but if you and I was single at the time and mm. and and as soon as you got married and wanted to have kids, you get out of the city. And he says, absolutely not. He said, the city is the best place to raise kids. Mm. And he said, you know, everything's nearby. Kids are there in schools and, and we have daycare and everything else we need very nearby. Plus, we have access to any any culture we want. We have access to any products we want. It, it, he just made it seem like it was actually much better to live in New York. And I had never thought about it because mm. I grew up thinking, I mean, as a, as a Western uh, as, you know, Americans, I should say, um, uh, dream mm. was the 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 house on the, on with the garage and and lawn, and um, uh, and the only reason you might not want that is because you wanted to again socialize or something like that. Yeah. So ever since then, it was in the back of my mind. It's like, wow, how wrong can you be uh, when you have a perception of what quality of life means? Yes. Uh, and and the the suburban lifestyle. And so, which points out to me that we, just because that perception of of landed gentry being 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 utopian, mm. it's it's a construct that may not last. It's a question that that is a construct we built. It's a contract, a construct we can unbuild, mm -hmm. and you might say, "Well, how long such do these changes occur?" Well, actually, it turns out that people's minds change a lot more quickly than infrastructures change. Yes, infrastructures may take decades, but actually, suddenly, fads, belief systems. You know, you see young people now, you know, changing their behavior much more quickly. So, first of all, you have the generational cycle. The generational cycle is about twenty to twenty to twenty to thirty years, meaning that generally, uh, 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 you know, kids tend to want to be different than their parents, and so you, you almost have a knee-jerk reaction to sort of do things differently. And that's yep. that's a that's been that's been a cycle of change forever, but. But even more profound would be that that the entire society all kind of agrees that things are should be different, 
And, uh, and, and so what's holding things back, and this is Bob Mestine's jobs to be done, what's mm. holding things back versus the, 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 the wish to, to, get, to go to a better place. Uh, th- these are the tug of war, push and pull. And I'm just cautioning people, don't assume that the way the world is now mm. and the foundational beliefs, all, almost unspoken, mm. unstated, un, un, uh, unwritten rules, those might very well change. Mm. And, and we've gone through tremendous change in other things uh, which are unrelated to transport, but you know, or, or, or how we arrange our living spaces. Mm. But basic things like communications, social norms, yeah. what, is, what is right and what is wrong. And I've lo- lived long enough to see pretty dramatic change. Uh, some things do not change. You know, mm-hmm. humans are genetically the same, typically, but, uh, as they were. But it, there's, there's a lot of things that we do are, are willing to change. And that's, that's one of the things that whenever I'm faced with uh, objections that, that suggest that we, you know, we, we're, we're never going to change. Mm-hmm. This is a fundamental belief that we all need to live in a, in a, in a house with a, with a fence around it. I, I, say, I say believe, you know, don't think that that's impossible. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, maybe it's, well, it's, not, it's not possible till it's possible sort of thing, right? Yeah. The phrase I used to use is that, you know, you go from impossible to inevitable. At mm. some point, people start to transition from this idea of, of uh, this can't happen to it can't not happen. Mm. Um, I sometimes talk about tobacco, but it, you can go back and, and see other things that we've changed our minds about mm. on, on, on a, on a um, if not global basis, on a, uh, you know, women's rights. Mm. Uh, a lot of these are social justice questions, but there's a lot more basic foundational, you know, apolitical stuff. Uh, notions about uh, standards of beauty or mm. notions about standards of, of uh, what does it mean to be happy. Mm. You know, I'll just give that out there, which is as basic as you can get. So you might say be- happiness is... Uh, is wealth, mm. and then and then and then and wealth meant possessions. Mm-hmm. So let's say you know, twentieth uh, century man, a consumer man, was 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 obsessed with possessions of houses and cars and possessing um, uh, appliances and durable goods, and that was a measure of wealth. Now, if you ask younger people, uh, so I'm told that they pos- they wish to possess experiences yeah so well, the, you I know saying consider that, myself a younger person i'd say horace and i'd yes. say that that's definitely yeah in line so, with how so i think about things i we just went on a bike ride and we gen, we uh, we had a certain sense of satisfaction of having accomplished something that we mm. went to see the seashore now it cost something out of pocket to get the the bikes but at the end i didn't feel like like uh, it's it's uh, we, I wanted to own a bike, mm. um, and that was a great uh, you, you know uh, um, the memory of that the mm. pictures you're gonna get and you know the, the sharing you're gonna do with the pictures of those of that trip and mm. and the social status you might gain from saying I've been to New Zealand you know Christchurch seashore mm. here's my photo here's my Instagram and that I think partly it's fed by the computers and and communication networks that suddenly we feel our status rise mm. because we were there mm. versus our status rising with a time before we had any of those technologies to say I possess a few things and you know, I can tell my friends about it and mm. or my neighbors can see you see how that you, you know you you might say well how did 
teens or, or young people become so much different than their parents. Well, it is partly the, the technology that enabled them to socially signal differently than they used to. Mm. So this is what, this is the question then again. So you, if you trace the causal mechanism by which by which so much behavioral change did occur mm. and such a deep perception of what is wealth, mm. you realize that the root of it might be a, techno, a technological adoption, right? Mm. You have a new tool to 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 stay to take it's almost like a social technological adoption yes and that, but almost all technologies end up having a social part to them mm. a social element to them so th this is why i say it, it, it's it's not inconceivable that we have such dramatic change in our perception of wealth in terms of houses mm. in terms of properties that we own and where they're located mm. right the status symbol that you might have of a mcmansion as the u.s mm -hmm. and now we're seeing that fading very quickly <laughs> far goodness. more quickly yeah. than, the, than the house itself will be left standing i mean i go through neighborhoods in new england mm. which are um dotted with these victorian mansions mm. And and they're sitting on top of a hill, typically. Mm. So 19th century man would have, oh, I mean that, of course, uh, not just male or female, but the, the, the notion of a 19th century person mm. was that success and wealth was a mansion on a hill, hill. Yeah. with servants. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and 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 the 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 wealthiest would would migrate towards these special and now they're they're unmaintainable. Mm. Uh, they probably fell into disrepair in the 1950s already. Mm. Um, now this if if they are maintained, it's because like there's five families living in that in that place. Maybe even. Uh, more than that, and if it's a student neighborhood and suddenly it's like a dormitory, the old mm -hmm. mansion, or it turns into a, an, an academic building or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and and so very even in the 20th century, and what the cause of change away from mansion living into more suburban houses and things like that is because we didn't have servants anymore, mm -hmm. because we couldn't afford servants, because we had to pay income tax and we had to pay payroll tax and we mm -hmm. had to pay all these other things. This happened much more in Britain too, because all middle class and middle upper class and had a servant. If you read Agatha Christie, you see how the characters were always about, you know, having these multiple classes of individuals. Mm. And again, what caused Britain to change were taxes and mm. the end of empire and and the the you know the Keynesian economics or whatever mm -hmm. you want to, you know, you have this 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 boiling of all these forces that occurred. So this is what you know, some of that change is is due to geopolitical forces and World War II, but that too would have been, you know, because the end of steam era, with the, the beginning of of mechanization, the the you know empire existed because of technology, and the end of empire came about because of technological change, mm -hmm. and that end of empire caused Britain, society in Britain, to change dramatically, and that reflects in in our housing situation. So it it, it affected how people felt like having a manor or having an estate or having a a townhouse. Sure, or, you know. All these things are a product of their time. Mm. The the living the, the the living arrangements we have are a product of a time. Mm -hmm. So the the question on on suburbia, this 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 model of living mm. that we have, is to me nothing more than a tiny blip. 
yes. in the history of humanity. Totally. Which is dependent upon all these other factors, which is like yes. what was our transport system and availability and our exactly. business models yeah. and I, I, that it, and like our you, employment yeah. situation. If you were to put your finger on how, on, so the two, two major inventions allowed the suburbia, mm. obviously the automobile, mm. but also electrification mm-hmm. and the telephone. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were in pre, let's say, pre-Edwardian times, Let's not forget that, you, you know, if you were a farmer, which did have a house on the plot of land, mm-hmm. was essentially the, the, the farmhouse was the, the prototypical suburb, like, suburban house, although mm-hmm. the, there were many more together. But the dream was to have that isolation that the, that the farmhouse gave you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had no neighbors, no noisy neighbors and the funny smells and all these other problems of living in apartments. And, 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 and yet, 19, in 19th century or earlier, the farmhouse was a desolate place mm. where people were, were unhappy yeah. because they had no way to talk to their neighbors. Yeah. And so in order for you to socialize, you, you almost had to go to church. Mm. And so there was maybe go to the general store and speak with one or two people who might happen to be there. And and so we the life of a farmer was a very isolated, difficult life, mm. and uh, and this is true in Europe in much earlier times as well. That that market days, which is when people finally came together, were the, essentially the only time to get to socialize, to find a, a, a spouse, to to learn news, to find what's going on. There was no other way. So communications are another part of the story. So when the telephone happened, it means that being in in isolation in the, in your suburb meant that you could still chat with your friends, mm. you could still socialize, you could still get the news. So television also that brought the news and radio mm. brought the news. Uh, you didn't go to market towns to do so. Yeah. Uh, the CS robot so catalog. All the the cost the cost of communication and information went to zero. The cost of transportation went to zero. So why not live anywhere you wanted to? Mm. Right. You could live in this isolation, and therefore you would have a sense of of uh, a sense of ownership, a sense of pride in, in where, where you were, um, and, and, and the, this, this sort of having a landed gentry kind of mentality. Mm. But again, that's a construct of the 20th century and made possible by these, these new technologies. Now, if you fast forward then to 21st and even late 21st, we're going to have people who will have virtual reality, mm. who will have a, 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 a sense of not property, but a sense of experiential mm-hmm. uh, value. Mm-hmm. And, and so they could also live anywhere, but not necessarily in isolation. Mm-hmm. They could be, you know, in, 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 in urban. I think the, the sometimes dystopian view of this future society would be like if you go to the highly dense Japan or mm-hmm. Hong Kong or Asian cities, mega cities in Japan, where also people are, are socializing through, you know, uh, internet cafes and 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 living in virtual in virtual worlds and and many times actually feeling quite lonely even though they're they're in the middle of a very very dense environment. So yes. there's there's positives and negatives, obviously. So my my only point is don't think that these things are static. That mm. suburbia and automobiles and malls and uh, and sitting and watching TV every night. Mm. Those are great, you know, those were great inventions in their time. They were made a lot of sense in that time, but 
but things progress so rapidly and change so rapidly because of computes, mm. computers, because of communications, uh, because of all these Moore's law side effects, that we're we're facing a situation where we might we might end up with uh, uh, young people desiring completely different arrangements than, mm. than than they used to, and and as a result. They're not going to care about having a car in the driveway. Well, it's just funny, you know. I mean, it's literally that that you know. I moved to Wellington uh, probably five six months ago, and part of the one of the like attracting things for me was it's a dense, walkable Mm. city. Yeah, you can walk anywhere. Yeah, you can walk anywhere in that place. And and I think about it from a place of like what a city is going to look like in the future if they're saying we want to be able to attract young, wealthy. Um, people who are going to come and build and and to your point they can live you know there will be more ge- geographic um, ability for a lot of people to be able to move and be able to engage and build their things yeah um, um, so it, yeah it, it just it just comes down to like those places end up being I think the places like micro mobility is almost like a it's a it's it's in some ways like a leading indicator of like this place is it's a leading it it's a proxy it's not the thing mm-hmm. um, Things are all interrelated and interdependent, and and uh, it's going to be. I, so I think it's it's a it's an yeah it's it's one of those um, consequences of our technological evolution as as the way we the technologies we use in our lives, and because of those technologies, I I, I mentioned the four enablers. Uh, before probably the electric drive, the you know, lithium-ion battery, the the GP, G, GSM and GPS, or actually communications and, and positioning, and the smartphone, mm-hmm. which allows discovery. Those are the enabling thing, technologies for micromobility, and none of them were designed for it. They were designed for completely different uh, aspects, and were they were re you know they were stolen or borrowed or sure. or are and reconfigured together to to inject into uh, a wheeled mo- motorized vehicle my th- th- so the point is though that that those you know the micromobility's um emergence not born out of a eureka moment we need this one object that's mm. kind of got bit hobbled together from leftover pieces mm. um but it 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 too then forces as uh, forces a change in behavior, but it, it's, it's usually again through leadership. But then uh, people start to question: Now that I have this mode available, maybe yes. I don't need to live the way I've, I've, my parents lived. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, I can, I can suddenly unleash these opportunities of interaction and other things that I care about and, and experiences and so on. Which leads to new economic. You know, people blame millennials or whatnot, but it's 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 not that you know it's not them that they're different. They're the same genetically as their mm. parents. The, what differs is that they're using new technologies, and they're, sure. you, they're as a result, their eyes are open to new things mm. and new definitions. Right or wrong, I don't know. You know, in many ways, perhaps they should own more things because mm-hmm. they're going to have more financial stability and and uh, and and more independence fundamentally. I mean, I'm kind of an old man and so i believe in these things but uh you know i like possessions uh, quite a bit so um you know and and, you know if you step back back far enough you know the idea of consumerism the idea of uh defining net worth by by assets the the idea of durable goods the idea of consumer uh, consumer products altogether Mm. all these things are very new Mm. they're fairly you know it's not a you're 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 um you're great great grandparents didn't mm. have them 
It's, mm-hmm. that, it's not that far back that, that it didn't exist that way. And so, so what was it like? Uh, that's why I love to look at history. I like to, to, to talk to older people to, to have them explain what life was like, you know. And, and um, I encourage everyone to do that a little bit, you know, talk to your elders and understand a little bit where, where how different life was mm. and, and foundational questions of what matters, right? Mm. So... Um, this all informs just to wrap up i think this all informs the um this policy decision making stuff Mm. because if you tell these stories to counselors to ministers to city uh to transit and authorities and so on and so on just remind them because they they're people too they have they have grandparents they Mm. have children and you say guys the, the world is dynamic and it's changing a lot and and the very things you use in your pocket, you know, didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. Um, and that's, you behave differently because of them. A lot more p- potential for change occurs. Mm. Uh, and, and that's why, um, in many ways, I think politicians and policymakers are somehow the, they're seen as a, the, the least dynamic, but they have to deal with the most the most uh, uh, with with issues of the day. Mm. So th- they're they're not hired to deal with vision. They're hired to deal. I mean, even a, even an entrepreneur at least has to think, or a business person has to think a little bit ahead. Mm. But a manager of a city has to deal with problems that exist today, mm-hmm. fixing things and making sure people. So I I this you know I call this being effective, mm. not not efficient. It's just things have to work. So we can't, the, you know, you can't detract from that, what value they add mm. on that basis. But they still, to be motivated to make big changes, you need to say, but things can, big things can happen and they can happen quickly and they're driven by tech and all that. So mm. it's been a great experience here so far. Um, people are really open to this message and, and, well, we good, good. It's good to uh, to come and learn, and also, you know, once we do learn, to take this message further yet again. So, um, get in touch with us here if if you if you uh, want to have a conversation on. Yeah, uh, Horace is very good at talking to ministers. <laughs> am I? I don't know. I haven't. I, yeah. I have not. But the, the message was exceedingly well received, and I'll also link to uh, as well in the in the podcast notes. I'll link to the the interview that you did with Radio New Zealand because I actually thought that was a great uh, great interview with uh, Jesse Mulligan, um, where he, you know, it's like at the end of the day they're asking questions. He's, you know, that, that I feel thing. like I'm saying the same thing, yeah, maybe slightly different ways. But well, it was he he was asking it in the very like in a New Zealand context, and I think you did a very good job of explaining it there. So anyway, hey. Um, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But, All right. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. But it's it's been uh, it's been great so far. It's Good. great to have you here, man. This is yeah. like very very fun. Yeah. Everybody else should come as well. So yeah. please. New Zealand's the New Zealand's the bee's knees, and let me hit me up if you're going to be in town. If you're if you're uh, willing to take that journey, I think it's uh, for me it was from Korea. Um, but it's it's no matter for where you start, it's a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even even I think Australians need to fly three hours to get here. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think East Coast West West Coast is about what thirteen hours. Yeah, it's like a thirteen hour flight down from San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. God, what do people do before airplanes? I mean, I don't know, man. They, That's why New Zealand was such like it's such such a pioneering mentality because it's right. like well, you kind of come like you're here, you know? Yeah. The the the, the people came in the you know, earliest centuries must have taken what months to. 
to get here. Mm. So, yeah. Excellent. Cool. All right. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you.